of God. Who needs an outline, a verse sheet? And if you have your map, you might want to get that available. Uh, We're going to be looking at that a little bit. There was a lot of paper on the tables this morning, um, and that is because you got your packet of questions for the rest of the semester. And I just hope that you embrace those questions with the passion, same passion that Shelly and Lynn and I have when we're writing those questions. Um, I know that they can seem difficult and hard, and I just want to encourage you that Getting the right answer is not the point. That's not our goal for these questions. We are hoping that the questions are interesting and they're thought-provoking because our goal is for you to read the Word of God and to read it not like other books. The Bible is different. It's not like other books. It's not um, something we read for entertainment or for information. We read the Word of God to take it in, to assimilate it so that it become part of us as we live in this world that God created Psalm 19 says that um, the word is sweet as honey. And that's what I want for you to read the word and take it in like you are savoring sweet chocolate melting in your mouth. That the word of God would be so sweet to you. If the questions seem hard, then just go on to the next question. Or just read the scripture there and pray and say, Lord, what do you have for me in this. Um, but please, uh, you know, don't be discouraged by these questions. That's not what we want for you. We want you to read the word that's alive and active and it comes into your life and it changes you. Um, enough about that, but if you are discouraged, I know some of you are new to Bible study, you've never studied the word of God before and it may seem a little hard, please come talk to me. I want to encourage you. God will honor and will bless you for reading his word. Enough on that. I was going to talk about the Beauty and the Beast, too. How many of you went to see Beauty and the Beast this? Oh, how many of you were in it? How many of you did stuff? I know Karen behind stage and stuff, some of you. I know you all are probably exhausted. Thank you so much for being a part of that. It was terrific. Uh, You know, I loved it. And the joy for me was I was sitting in the balcony with my family, and next to me was Sally Harris. She's the mother of Luann Stumbo, who was Belle, and... Sally had her three grandchildren, Luann's children, and they were just on the rails, so intent looking at Beauty and the Beast, and you know they'd seen it many times. But the cutest thing was when they got to the song, um, Be Our Guest, Be Our Guest, little Ellis starts, he's the middle one, he starts dancing. He's like, Be Our Guest, and you can see, and he's got every move from somebody up here. I don't know if it was a spoon or a plate or what, but he's got every move down, and I just laughed. It was so cute, and he didn't even know he was doing it. He was just so intent watching, and he's got his arms, and he was the cutest thing. You know, that is a talented family, and I see there's more talent uh, on the way. I love the theme of Beauty and the Beast, that Belle's unconditional love for the beast transformed him into a prince. And that's really what we've been looking at and what we're looking at in this study. We see that the love and power of Jesus transforms these 12 ordinary, uneducated, sometimes weak-faithed men to become the great disciples that will go out and tell his story to the world and change it forever. This is week five of our 11-week study, Come Follow Me, and we've looked at Andrew, who uh, is the first called, and he's also the one that's always bringing someone to Jesus. We've looked at James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder, James was the first uh, apostle martyred to die for the faith. 
And Shelley's been very good in, in showing us how John was transformed by the love of Jesus. When he grasped the love of Jesus, it turned him into a man that had a fiery temper, temper into the man that wrote five books in the New Testament, all telling us about the truth of Jesus' love. And today we're going to look at Nathaniel and Philip. Now, I have always, I'm very excited to be talking about them. I've always liked Philip. Um, I realize it's because I am like him in many ways. So you can imagine what a joy it is for me to see how patient and how kind and gentle Jesus is with Philip. Let's go ahead and turn to John 1, uh, and we're going to look at um, verse 43. Now, we have up here on the screen Philip, who is on the right. And Nathaniel, who is on, no, no, Philip is on the left, and Nathaniel is on the right. So Nathaniel has the little blue thing around him. So it's Philip on the left, Nathaniel on the right. I recognized him. <laughs> Actually, Shelley told me beforehand I almost got it wrong. So anyway, okay, let's turn to John 1, 43, and let me tell you a little bit about what's happening. First, let, let me explain this too. Someone asked me. Philip is only seen in the Gospels. If you're reading about Philip in Acts, that is Philip the deacon. Of the, he was a deacon in the early church. So the only place you're going to see Philip talked about is in the Gospels or where they're mentioned in that first chapter of Acts. But um, this is the Philip that is the apostle, the disciple of Jesus. And what's happening here in chapter 1, we've talked about it before. If you're looking at your map, they're down south. The Jordan River is that squiggly line. And right across from Jericho, on the other side of the Jordan, that is where uh, we think John the Baptist was. That's where he baptized Jesus. And there are some followers that have come to listen to John the Baptist. And we, we learned that two of them were Andrew and John the Apostle, and that they were with John the Baptist. And one day, as Jesus walks by, John the Baptist says, look, that's the guy I'm talking about, Jesus, the Son of God, the uh, Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world. And so they spent the day with Jesus, and they became believers. They believed he was the Messiah, and it says that the first thing Andrew does is to go and tell his big brother Peter. And next week, we're going to be looking at Peter, and Lynn Kitchens will come, and she's going to be uh, teaching us some things about the disciple Peter. And so that brings us to verse 43 in chapter 1. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, Follow me. From that verse, we see that Jesus is going to leave the south and go up north to Galilee. In fact, if you want to look down later, chapter 2, verse 1, it tells us he was going to a wedding in Cana, and that's where he would turn the water into wine and work that first miracle. So Jesus is leaving, but he goes to Philip. He finds him and says, follow me. You know, we've been talking about that follow me a lot, and I thought um, that I would just say that Jesus also invites each of us to follow him. What does that mean to follow Jesus? We've been talking about it a lot. To me, first of all, it means believing that Jesus is the way for life and life eternal. It's coming in faith to accept him for who he says he is, the Son of God, the one who died for us so that the penalty of our sin is forgiven. He is our Savior. Secondly, when we talk about following him, we want to follow Jesus, to be like Jesus. We want to follow his example. We want to do what he did and live as he lived. And so we look at the word of God and we see what Jesus tells us to do. 
And we make decisions based on the word and based on talking to God. And that, that's what we call prayer. And then as, up to, as opportunities come our way, we follow Jesus. And it looks different in each of our lives. Ephesians 2.10 on your verse sheet says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has prepared for us good works. And so for some, following Jesus might be teaching Bible study on Thursday. Or maybe it's adopting an orphan. Or maybe it's leading a small group. Or maybe it's loving your children and your husband with humility and with sacrifice. Maybe God is calling you to pack your bags and go to Africa and live there a while and make some relationships. Or maybe to follow Jesus means to invite your neighbor to come to dinner and begin a relationship with them. God has prepared different things for each of us to do for those works. He has made us unique. He has made us special, and he has special plans for each of us. And we know those as we spend time with Jesus. So what is Philip's response when Jesus says to him, follow me? We read in verse 44, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip decides to follow Jesus. We know that because he goes and he finds his friend Nathanael and he shares the good news with him. And I love this. Jesus finds Philip. But we see Philip telling Nathanael that he has found Jesus. Philip has been looking for Jesus, but it's Jesus that finds him. And that is how it is with us. We think that we are finding Jesus, but really Jesus is always seeking us first. So we know that Philip was a seeker of spiritual things. He knows the Old Testament scriptures. He says to Nathaniel that we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law. Moses wrote about in the law. That's referring to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then he mentions the prophets. And those prophets are Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea and all those minor prophets. Those are those books in the Old Testament that Philip is referring to. And he has studied them. He has a love for scripture. He is looking for the Messiah. And we know that Philip believes and accepts Jesus as Messiah because of what he says to Nathaniel. But I love the way that he um, introduces him because you get this first glimpse of Philip's kind of down-to-earth, practical side. So he says that it's Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. He gives kind of this earthly description. And it's true that Joseph was the earthly father of Jesus, just not the biological. We see that Philip is an eager and a willing disciple, and that he is from the town of Bethsaida. And that's going to come in handy in just a second as we turn to chapter 6. Just turn over in your Bible. Now, you might want to put a little bookmark there because after a bit we're going to come back to that John 1. But for now, turn over to John 6, verse 1. And this is the feeding of the 5,000. This is the miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about feeding the 5,000. Now this takes place. Let Let me read the first few verses. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed 
on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. Now from this we know that this is taking place um, close to the Passover feast, and it would be one year from this time, the next Passover, when Jesus would go to the cross. So at this time, all 12 disciples have been called, and they have been living with Jesus and following Jesus around and being with him for many months now, for over a year. They had all been together with him. We also know from the account in Luke that this takes place up north, close to Bethsaida, the hometown of Philip. So let's read on. Verse 5, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Verse 7, Philip answered him, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. You know, Jesus knows Philip's personality. He knows that um, Philip is uh, analytical, that he is practical, that he's detailed-oriented, that he is kind of earth-bound. And he knows that as he sees this crowd that has followed Jesus because Jesus has been healing and he has been teaching, and this big crowd, we know it's 5,000 men, so there's probably 10,000 people coming. It's a number that's overwhelming. And he knows that Philip has already, in his analytical way, been estimating the crowds, and he's figured out what it would take to feed this people. He knows the resources of Bethsaida, and he knows how much money. He's already calculated what it would take to feed them, even just a bite. Jesus knows this, and so he asks this question to Philip, and he asks it, it says in verse 6, to test him, because Jesus already knew that he was going to work this miracle. Now, testing Philip, this is not a bad thing. I think when we read that, we think, oh, no, a test. He's setting him up. That's not fair. That's unkind. The truth is, it's a good thing. Jesus was using this as a teaching opportunity to increase Philip's faith. It was a good thing. When we are tested, it increases our faith. It's not a bad thing. We should embrace that, as Karen Miles said in the praise time. Jesus never tests us so that we would do evil, but he tests us to refine our faith. Jesus knew that Philip's earthbound wheels were turning and that it would never occur to him to say to Jesus the words that Jeremiah used in 32, 17, nothing is too hard for you. I don't know how you're going to do it, Jesus. It seems impossible to me, but I know nothing is too hard for you. You can feed these people. But Philip cannot see past the physical problem at hand to gaze at Jesus. Sometimes uh, I'm like that. I am earthbound, I'm practical, I'm looking at details, and I'm missing the power of Jesus Christ. And I need to realize that about myself. And that's what Jesus wanted Philip, to realize that about himself, so that when he saw the miracle, his faith would grow. I want to know that about myself, so that when situations come that are hard and difficult, I can go, as Karen said, to Jesus, looking up immediately in faith, knowing that God is in control and that he's working in my life and that he's going to give me the grace to get through it. I want to remember Ephesians 3.20. It's on your verse sheet. 
It says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory. Jesus can do more than we can even ask or imagine. And not just more, but immeasurably more. Immeasurably more than we can even ask. And when we remember this, it strengthens our faith and we are able to look up to Jesus. We don't gaze at our circumstances. We glance at our circumstances and we gaze at God. Remember, Jesus tests us to strengthen our faith. Oswald Chambers says that faith is abandoned confidence in him. It's abandoned confidence. It's throwing our faith on Jesus. And when we have that kind of confidence in Christ, it becomes easier to look up at him instead of out at our circumstances. We begin to do this in small things, in small ways, in those daily things that come up that begin to um, to cause us to um, doubt or to be anxious or to worry. We give those to Jesus. And then when those hard and devastating things comes our way, we are able to look with faith to Jesus. And we all know women like that. We, I know women that have lost their husbands. I know women that have had children die. And yet they are able to look with faith to Jesus, to trust him that his grace will be sufficient for them, that he is faithful and powerful and loving and in control. It doesn't mean that the situations may go away. That's not what having faith means. It means that God will give us the strength to get through it, that he has provision for us. Let's look next at Philip in uh, chapter 12 of John. If you'll turn over there, a couple more chapters to the right. Excuse me. And we're going to look at verse 20. Chapter 12, verse 20. Now this is taking place the Tuesday before Jesus goes to the cross on Friday. So this is one year later. One year later from when he fed the 5,000. Let's read those first verses. Verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with the request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Now, we um, are reminded here that Philip, once again, is from Bethsaida. And um, probably that could be because Philip has a Greek name. Now, Philip was Jewish. Um, We don't know his Jewish name. We only know this Greek name. And he might have been named for Philip of Macedonia, who was the father of Alexander the Great. You remember your history. As he came through conquering, he left um, a lasting Greek influence on northern Galilee. Or there was also a local ruler named Philip the Tetrarch who had done some great things for Bethsaida. He could have been named after him. And some commentaries even said that it's possible that Philip also spoke Greek. Now, um, I don't know if that's true or not, but what we know are the Greeks came to Philip, and I kind of think that maybe Philip was friendly and approachable. But what he was not was a risk taker. Philip wants to do the right thing. He doesn't want to make any mistakes. So he hesitates to take the Greeks to Jesus. You know, maybe he was thinking of the time that Jesus told the Canaanite woman, I have come only to the lost sheep of Israel. That's in Matthew 
15:24. Jesus did come first to bring salvation to the Jews, to fulfill that promise that was made to King David centuries before. But the blessing of his work on the cross would also include all Gentiles. John 6, 37 and 40 tell us this. There are many verses in Scripture that tell us that the Gentiles will be included, but these are two. Let me read those for you. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. So he hesitates, and he goes to Andrew to see what... Andrew thinks. And Andrew, of course, takes everyone to Jesus. So off they go. You know, Philip hesitates because he doesn't really understand the heart of Jesus. He doesn't understand the heart of Jesus. And then the last time we see Philip's words recorded are in John 14. And we're going to look at verse 7. Now this is two days later. It's Thursday night. We're in the upper room, and um, it's during the Last Supper, and Jesus is giving these last words to the disciples, words of comfort and words of strength, before he's going to go to the cross that next day on Friday. He has just told Thomas, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then he adds these words in verse 7. I think it was to emphasize his deity for all of them, and maybe especially for Philip. And he says these words, verse 7 of chapter 14. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip says this in verse 8. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. You know, does that just grip your heart to see? You want to say, Philip, Philip, what are you thinking What are you thinking? Have you not been paying attention? Do you not know Jesus? What are you thinking? Just two days before, on that Tuesday, that he took the Greeks to Jesus, Jesus had said these words on your verse sheet. Verses 44 and 45 of John 12, Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. Now, some of the commentators that I read were pretty um, harsh on Philip, uh, pretty hard on him, but uh, I just felt compassion for him and sorry for him. But what I really love is what Jesus says to him, how Jesus is with Philip. And I think he says this with such great love, such compassion and kindness that we can't even imagine. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father? And you might want to circle believe. We're going to see that two more times. And that the Father is in me. The words I say to you, underline words are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work and underlying work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe for a third time on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Believe, Philip. Believe me. What we see is 
Jesus pulling out all the stops this one last time for Philip before he goes to the cross. He doesn't berate Philip. He doesn't yell at him. He doesn't, you know, throw his hands up and say, hey, out. I've had it with you. What's it going to take? You can't be a disciple anymore. You know, none of that. None of that. Jesus knows Philip has been a faithful disciple, but he's slow. John MacArthur, in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, he says that Philip was slow to understand, slow to trust, and slow to see beyond the immediate circumstances. And so, Philip asks for visible proof. To Philip, seeing is believing. And Jesus, in essence, says, let go of that, Philip. Let go of your hold on this world and trust me. Believe. Let your faith go to the logical endpoint. Believe. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Certain of what we do not see. And you know what? I think that night, those words, I think Philip got it. I think right there, Philip learned that believing is seeing. Jesus is loving and patient with Philip throughout his ministry. He doesn't give up on Philip. And Jesus doesn't give up on us. In our moments of weak faith, in those times that we ask doubting questions, when we hesitate, Jesus does not give up on us because he knows that his power is made perfect in our weakness. Jesus wasn't sorry that he picked Philip. On the contrary, he knew that Philip would be the perfect disciple. And tradition says that Philip went out to spread the good news of Jesus. He died about eight years after James the Apostle died. And uh, tradition says that he died in Heliopolis, which is a town in Asia Minor. And before he went, hundreds came to know, um, or multitudes, they say, came to know who Jesus was because of the preaching and teaching of Philip. So let's go back now and look at Nathaniel. Let's go back to that John 1 where you have your bookmark. And we're going to look at Philip's friend, Nathaniel. I love it that Philip and Nathaniel are these great friends. What a blessing when God gives us friends. And just like um, it probably is with a lot of uh, you and your friends, there are some things you have in common, some things that you like together, but your personalities can be different. And that's what we see with um, Philip and Nathaniel. I have said that Philip is the practical seeker that was slow to understand. Nathaniel is the honest seeker that was quick to understand. They had some things in common, and we're going to see those right off. Let's uh, begin to read. First of all, let me. I, probably in your small groups, you learned that Nathaniel is the same person as Bartholomew. Bar means son of. So it really means, Bartholomew means son of Ptolemy. So that's like a last name. So he was really Nathaniel, son of Ptolemy. And he's called Bartholomew in the other Gospels, but John always refers to him by that given name, um, Nathaniel. We also know that Nathaniel is from Cana. We read that in John 21, and that's going to be important in just a, just a second here. So let's read, starting uh, again in 45. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael says back to him, 
Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Come and see, said Philip. Nathaniel, we see right off that he has this prejudice against um, Nazareth. Now, we don't know why. We know that he also loved the scripture. It says when Philip is talking, he's saying it's the one that we've read about, Moses and the law and the prophets. So we know that Nathaniel, too, was a seeker, that he was looking for the Messiah, and that he loved the scriptures and that he knew the scriptures. Philip and Nathaniel had probably come from up north, down south, to see John the Baptist and to hear what he was saying about this coming Messiah. So that we know that he loves the scriptures, but we also see that he has this prejudice against Nazareth. Now, he could have said, um, well, why is he from Nazareth? The book of Micah says that he'll be born in Bethlehem. Or maybe he could have said, Nazareth, I thought he'd be in Jerusalem where he's going to reign. But the way he says it, we see that that Nathaniel clearly has disdain for Nazareth. Now, I told you that first week that the Jews down south, they held all of Galilee, the northern part of Israel, in contempt. It was kind of the provincial country part of Israel. They thought the people were uneducated and lacked culture, and they held it in disdain. But Nathaniel, we just talked about, was from Cana. He is from Galilee. He's from up north. So it can't be that. Cana actually is not that far from Nazareth. So maybe it was some kind of rivalry between the towns, kind of like if you were born and raised in Fort Worth, you might say, can anything good come from Dallas? <laughs> I wasn't uh, born in Fort Worth, but after being in Fort Worth a long time, I kind of you know, get tense just going. So I'm kind of like that. You know, Why would you want to go to Dallas? It could have been that. But the thing is, we see that Nathaniel has a preconceived idea of where the Messiah would come from. And Nazareth certainly wasn't it. Prejudice um, is an ugly thing. And preconceived ideas can cause us to miss the truth. And that's what it was with Nathaniel. Nathaniel is skeptical because he has this preconceived idea of the Messiah. And it's so it is with us. When we go to the Word of God with preconceived ideas, and we sometimes miss the truth. We read something in the Word of God, but we dismiss it because it doesn't quite line up with how we're thinking. This certainly was true in Jesus' day. There were many religious leaders, um, the Pharisees, that missed Jesus, the coming Messiah, because they thought he was going to look different. They thought he was going to be someone different. And the, t- the fact that he came from Nazareth tripped them up. And we read that in John 7, 41 and 42. Others said he is the Christ, but still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? You know, the truth is we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But to them, they didn't know that. They didn't look into it. And all they knew that Jesus was the son of Joseph, the carpenter in Nazareth. And so, because of their preconceived ideas, they missed the truth of who Jesus was. Nathaniel is skeptical. But Philip says, characteristically, come and see. Because we know to Philip, seeing is believing. So he doesn't argue with them. He just says, come with me and I'll show you. And you know, as I thought about it, that's not a bad way to evangelize. You tell someone what you know to be true about Jesus in your life, what you know to be true about Jesus from the Word of God, and then you invite them to look, 
to read the Word or maybe to come to church. And then you let them decide. You cannot argue someone into believing about Jesus. The Holy Spirit has to draw them. We know that Nathanael went with Philip because in verse 47 we read, When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Now that is quite a statement from Jesus, and it seems like quite a compliment coming from him. You know, the New American Standard says, Here is an Israelite indeed. And that word indeed in the Greek is alethos, and it means truly or genuinely. Jesus is calling Nathanael a genuine Israelite without anything false. But what does that really mean, a genuine Israelite? It means that Nathanael worshipped God with genuine love and sincerity. He was not a hypocrite. He was not like so many of the Jewish people and religious leaders of that day who tried to look spiritual on the outside, but on the inside, their heart was far, far away from God. But Nathanael's heart was sincere. He truly worshipped Alethos. Nathanael responds to Jesus by asking this question, How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now this is huge. He is saying to Philip, I know who you are. I know where you were. I know what you were doing and thinking. I know your heart. And when Nathanael is faced with the omniscience of Jesus, Nathanael is quick to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, and he responds in belief. And we see um, his belief expressed in his testimony in verse 49, where it says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Nathanael seems to have open spiritual eyes, and he gets what it's taken Philip so long to understand. Jesus is God. Nathanael's prejudice is overcome as he sees the truth of Jesus, and his sincere heart was open to that truth. He goes on, Jesus goes on to say in verse 50, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this is exciting. It's exciting to me. That verse there, 51, is referring to a dream that Jacob had in Genesis 28. And it's very likely that Nathanael was under the fig tree reading this story in Genesis 28. And Jesus knew that. And so he makes um, this statement to you. And this is the story. Jacob, you might remember, is the son of Isaac, who is the son of Abraham. And in this chapter 28, Jacob has just tricked his father into giving him the blessing of the firstborn. Um, And that was big back then. And it wasn't rightfully Jacob's. It was really Esau's because that was his twin brother who was born before him. Jacob's mother, Rebecca, was pretty instrumental in this plan. And so she realizes that Esau is going to be pretty mad when he finds out. And so she helps Jacob to run away before Esau, Esau finds out and kills him. And we read that that first night, he lays down as he's run off, and he puts his head on a stone. 
Doesn't sound comfortable to me, but, and maybe that's why he had this dream, but he puts his head on a stone and he has this dream. And I've put it on your verse sheet. It's Genesis 28, 12 and 13. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. And then he goes on to tell Jacob the same blessing um, that he had given Abraham in Genesis 12, that he would have all that land, that he would have many descendants, and that from him would come a blessing that would be to all people. That blessing that would come from the line of Jacob through uh, Judah, through David, that was Jesus. That's a reference to Jesus. And in the um, King James, it uses, instead of stairway, it says ladder. And some of you may know that little song, you know, we are climbing Jacob. Who knows that? Jacob's ladder, we are. Okay, that's what this is referring to, to this dream, this stairway, this dream. And this is Jesus saying to Nathaniel, I am that stairway. I am Jacob's ladder. I am the one that is going to bridge that gap so that man can get to heaven. So that man can have that eternal relationship with God. I am that ladder. We see from these two disciples that they had flaws. Nathaniel had flaws and Philip had flaws. But Jesus knew that his power was made perfect in their weakness. Their flaws did not disqualify them. But on the contrary, Jesus knew that they would be perfect disciples for him. And so it is with us today. We are not perfect. Far from it. I have flaws. You have flaws. But Jesus wants us to follow him. And with his power and strength, we can do whatever it is that he has for us. So from Philip and Nathaniel, I've learned many things. And I hope that you've learned things too. Probably others uh, things than what I've written. But I've got three things on your outline. Things that I've learned. And the first one is that if I fail to see his possibilities, Jesus wants to increase my faith. Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18 says, Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Now, you know, who cares if... There are figs or olives or cattle in the stall. I mean, when you think about it, those words just kind of go past me. But what if you fill in things like, though my job at work seems to get harder and harder, though my children may make poor decisions, though my husband may lose his job, though my health may fail, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Fill in those things for you that cause your faith to waver. Those things for you that cause you anxiety. Fill those in. And then look to Jesus saying, I will be joyful in God, my Savior. You are my strength. You are my strength. You have the grace sufficient to get me through. The next one is if I have preconceived ideas. Jesus wants to give me truth. Jesus wants us to open our spiritual eyes and to see the truth. Jesus says, come to him with an open heart. Ask him for understanding. 
and he will give us truth. John 16, 13, he tells the disciples this. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. Pray to Jesus, open my eyes and let me see the truth. Give me understanding for whatever it is that you're not understanding. Whatever that's going on in your life, whatever you read in the word, whatever you're thinking Jesus might be asking you, ask that he would open your eyes to see the truth. And then the third thing, if I doubt, Jesus says, listen to my words and look at my works and believe You know, we've talked about several things today, but if you don't remember anything else, please remember this. Philip and Nathaniel had flaws, but they followed Jesus. We have flaws, but we are not disqualified. If we follow Jesus, his grace is sufficient. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, you are mighty and you are strong. Thank you so much. Father, we are weak, but we want to follow you, Lord. So I ask that your grace would be sufficient for our weakness. Thank you for these disciples, Lord, these disciples that followed you, that loved you. Thank you for Philip and Nathaniel. And Lord, that we can look at their flaws and that we can feel encouraged that we are not disqualified either, but that you love us just as much. Father, thank you for each one of these women. I pray, Lord, that your word would go deep into their hearts, and I pray that they would not be confused by it, but that their eyes would be open with spiritual understanding, that they would see your love, that they would come and receive all that you have for them, for you are a generous and loving God, and we love you back. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Deb. If you have a prayer need, we have our prayer committee. They meet every single week. I know I announce this every week because I, if you have something that's on your heart and you need to be prayed for or you want to pray with, for someone, they will be up in this front pew by the baptismal every single week. So come on on front if you would like to pray with them or need some prayer support. Also, this Saturday from 10 to 12 is a women's mentoring workshop. You may have seen this postcard. It says it's an opportunity to grow in our understanding of the hows and whys of investing in the life of a younger woman. If you are interested in this, you can come on Saturday from 10 to noon. It's in the chapel. It's October 6th, this Saturday. And lastly, if this is your first year at Women in the Word... Or maybe you are a newcomer today. I know there were at least five new people that came to Bible study today because I counted. If you would love to have come have lunch with us, our leadership, our committee and our small group leaders would love to meet you. We're having lunch on us in the garden room right after Bible study. So we would love to have you come join us for sandwiches and drinks. Okay, have a great lunch and we'll see you next week.